Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show. This is the show where I sit down with amazing humans. I unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams. And today's guest is the one and only Susan Kane. Susan was the author a number of years ago of a a book that spent eight years on the New York Times bestseller list called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And we have her on the show today to discuss her new work, Bittersweet. Brilliant set of themes that we talk about here, understanding and embracing introversion, understanding why we seek beauty as human beings, why the power of those who seek beauty uh, can unlock and help us transform our lives. We also talk about the toxic and false framework of winners and losers, as well as a three-step plan, maybe even call it a recipe for how to pursue the highest versions of ourselves. She is a brilliant thinker and she speaks super plain language. And obviously in a world like we're discussing quiet and introversion and bittersweet, how sorrow and longing actually help us become incredible people. She is such a great example of how you can take something that pop culture doesn't understand and how we can twist that in a way that helps us realize that we've been wrong all along. She is brilliant. I can't wait for you to enjoy this episode. Yours truly and Susan Kane. Hey, real quick, before we get into the show, I want to let you know today's episode is sponsored by Creative Live. If there's one thing that's clear now more than ever before, that is refreshing your skills being critical to the future of your employment, your ability to live the dreams that you seek in career and hobby in life, to expand your business, attract better clients, or move on to that next phase of your career. A recent survey reported that 52% of employees feel burned out at work. That's up almost 10% from just a year ago. Now, Creative Live is built to help you reach your goals. It's built with your goals in mind and specifically how to avoid burnout, pursue the things that light you up. So what else is exciting? Gone are the days for paying for every one of the classes individually. Now for 15 bucks a month, you can become a Creative Live subscriber and have access to 2,000 classes. That's where Pulitzer Prize winners, Emmy winners, Oscar winners, Grammy winners teach art, design, photography, video, music, business, and more. Check it out. Go to creativelive.com slash creator pass. That's all one word, creativelive.com slash creator pass. Now let's get into the show. Susan Kane, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. We're grateful to have you today. Thank you so much, Chase Jarvis, for having me. I know we've been talking about this for such a long time. Um, <laughs> it's and, you know, I mean, you'll probably relate as a fellow creative person. Like, I think you first reached out maybe two years ago or so, and I so wanted to be on your show, but I am like the ultimate creative single tasker. <laughs> and I was finishing up Bittersweet, and I just couldn't do anything else and like I still have a visual I like printed out the invitation and it was sitting right next to where I am right now <laughs> I was like okay I'm gonna get to that I, and at first I was like I'll get to that in three months because I thought that's all it would take me to finish the book but of course three months became two years so. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm so grateful one of the reasons that we originally reached out was because your uh, previous book quiet had such a profound impact on me and my wife, specifically my wife, she just rolled in one day and was like, I'm, I, I feel seen. 
this, you have to read this. And you'd been on the radar for me for a while, just because of the work that you put out there in the world. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you got to that before I did. Kate gets my wife's name. And uh, <laughs> Hi, so we, we bonded deeply over that. And uh, what a what an amazing, so timely and um, inspirational, and just I would say, aperture opening book that you wrote for so many people. And speaking of being a creative single tasker, which is you know th- that's I think what we all probably should be. Uh, so thank you for setting a good example. Um, I'm very happy that this took two years because it it took two years for all the right reasons. But let's start out. Oh, thank for, you. And two, year, two years is only since the day you happened to invite me on the show. It really, <laughs> in real life, must have taken, I don't know, I say five years because that sounds respectable, but it was probably more like seven years, probably, honestly. Probably yeah, was. It just takes me a long time. Probably was. But clearly, the pace that you're working at is the right pace because the work that you're putting out is absolutely stunning. And that's what we want to talk about today. And I always love to... to start off by honoring your previous work and for the handful of audience members who might not be familiar with you and or your work, mm-hmm. would you start off by you know describing yourself beyond the uh, I'm a single focused um, creator, but just give a little context to who you are, what you spend time doing. And again, this is for anyone who might not be familiar with your work. I know most people will be, but let's, let's, uh, include those half a dozen people of the hundreds of thousands who listen to the show let them know who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So, you know, as you said a little while ago, I uh, published a book called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And that one too, I had been working on for well over seven years. Um, and, uh, and I have more recently come out with a new book called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and longing make us whole. We will talk um, about that in great yeah. life today. Yeah, and um, and so I'm a writer, and I like to go really deep. And my way of doing it is to come up with an idea and then walk around the world for years and years and years, and talk to everybody who I can, and read everything I can, and process it all um, uh, into books. And at the same time. In a most unlikely way, I have become a public speaker. And I say most unlikely because I used to be absolutely terrified of public speaking um, to the point of reliably losing weight every time I would give a talk because I just couldn't eat out of nerves for like a week beforehand. It was very intense for me. Um, And then when Quiet came out, uh, I gave a TED talk about it and that went kind of viral and and then the speaking invitations started to come and so I now have this unlikely career as a public speaker um, and have become quite comfortable with it which is something I never would have thought possible so yeah so my creative life now is one of writing and speaking but um, but I would say my sweet spot is still like sitting in a cafe, happily typing away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that one of the attributes that you just described there is this idea of going deep. And in a world where everything is now and so many things are at our fingertips and in a, in a helpful way, we now have more tools and access to, um, things that can accelerate our progress and things that are, that, that can, 
help those of us that are creators or entrepreneurs or, you know, freelancers or are just radically curious that we can, yeah. you know, yeah. put our fingers in lots of jars at the same time. And I think that's beautiful. But one of the things that you have made, this is, these are going to be my words, not yours, that you, I believe you've made a career out of is being very non-obvious, being, um, well, quiet in a world that, you know, pr prior to this book coming out, I think it was, it was largely the common thread in popular culture that leaders and, you know, everyone was a boisterous type A extroverted person. And you have in this book, you know, cut the opposite way. And those are my favorite things in popular culture, things that help you step outside of the common, you know, framework and, and look at things in a different way. Um, it, it's very easy to say the same thing about bittersweet, right? Your most recent book, how sorrow and longing actually make us whole. This thing that have, has historically been categorized as in the opposite way, like, Oh, longing and sorrow are bad and yeah. happy feelings are good. So, it strikes me when you said that, that your work of going deep is also, you know, runs counter to this popular notion that everything's at our fingertips. So I guess this is a little bit of a creative process question for us to start with. How has that benefited you? How has ignoring the invite to be on the show for two years <laughs> helped you? I mean, I'm just, I'm jesting, of course. No, but, I get it, I get it. But I, I mean, this is a beacon of inspiration for someone like myself, who is, uh, I, I believe deeply in this idea. How did you come up with this? Is this just your natural way of being? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm largely taken by this idea. So say more, please. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny because I, um, I recently, or Ted recently released a talk that I gave about bittersweetness too. And they, you know, as part of the protocol, they ask you to come up with a little bio describing yourself in just a few words. And I was like, well, what is it besides author? And what I ended up with was explorer of hidden superpowers. Um, because I think that's what I end up doing. It's, I, I don't know if it's what I set out to do. I, I would say with both books, with quiet and with bittersweetness, and maybe I should define what bittersweetness is, but it, in both cases, um, I was drawn to like a certain way of being in the world that I believe has incredible powers and a long storied tradition behind it, but that for some inexplicable or yes, explicit, I ended up explaining it, but for some <laughs> seemingly inexplicable reason um, is undervalued in our culture, you know, and with quiet, it was the, the power of a more introverted and cerebral way of being. Um, with bittersweetness, it it's a kind of biography of a feeling that I believe we all have, and especially creatives. And we can talk about um, the overlap there, but just this sense that we all come into this world with that um, that there is a more perfect and beautiful world out there than the one that we currently inhabit, and there's a kind of longing to go back to that more perfect and beautiful world. Um, and we think of the, the word longing, as you just said, we think of it as being 
um, you know, we talk about mired in longing, like it seems like a state that you would wallow in unproductively and really unhelpfully. And it's actually just the opposite. Um, like the, literally the etymology of the word means to grow longer, like to reach for something. And so when we're being creative, that's what we're doing. Like we're, we're possessed by a vision of something that's better and more perfect than what exists at this moment. And, and we're always trying to reach for that place. Um, and, and bittersweetness, I, I define as a kind of recognition that joy and sorrow and light and dark are forever paired in this world. Um, and we came up with a bittersweet quiz that you can take to figure out how uh, drawn you tend to be to these states of mind. And one of the things we found is that people who score high on the bittersweet quiz also tend to states that predispose them to creativity. And this did not surprise me at all, but it was like, it was really cool to find it. Um, like I did the quiz with the psychologist, Scott Barry Kaufman and, and David Yadin, and it was just very cool to kind of prove that, uh, prove what I was finding in thousands of years of wisdom traditions to be able to demonstrate it in a evidentiary scientific way. It was nice. Well, I was, I've got somewhere else. I want to take that as well. This quiz that I yeah. also had dog-eared here for us to speak about. I oh, do okay. Want, I, You'll I have do to tell us to... where you, where you no, found No, no, no. This is like, <laughs> this is, this is all working just right into my plan. Um, <laughs> I love this. The oh, I'm going to read what you wrote here. The definition, bittersweet, is a tendency of states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow, an acute awareness of passing time, and a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world. That mm -hmm. is beautiful, you know, just <laughs> in, in the construction of those words. But the idea that this is somehow a superpower for you to identify, you know, is the superpower that you mentioned your ability to engage with the bittersweetness or is your superpower the ability to look at something differently than we have looked at it before? No, when I talk about superpower, I'm talking about um, more of the former, like the, the fact that the ability that all humans have to enter this state of bittersweetness is mm. a hidden superpower. Got and it. everything in our culture is telling us, you know, don't go there, don't go to that state of bittersweetness. And when you listen to your, um, you know, very sad and minor key music, that's probably something you should do behind closed doors and you shouldn't like be blasting it from your speakers in your law school dorm, which I did. <laughs> and I, I told that story. Um, you know, and people kind of tease you for listening to that kind of music. Like, Yes, it's high on the charts, but but it, it's like something better done privately. Um, so so our culture is saying, you know, keep it over there, keep it locked away and limited, even though um, that state of being uh, is one of our most potent gateways to creativity, but also to connection and to love and to a state of transcendence. And I think we all know this because... Um, when you hear that kind of music, you know, whatever, like I love, I love Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. I was like, you go right oh into God, it right off the no, bat. I love Leonard Cohen <laughs> so much. And like I spent my whole life trying to figure out why the heck do I love this so much? Like, what is it? What did you um, get a phrase for him? Like the poet of, what was it? Oh gosh. I will find it while you're explaining. But so keep, sorry, keep going on the Leonard Cohen bit there. 
Yeah, yeah. Like I couldn't figure out how could it be that this music that is so ostensibly gloomy um, made me feel so uplifted, not like not gloomy at all. It, and and then I found out, like I started looking at the research, and it turns out that you know we play on average the the happy songs on our playlists about 175 times, but we play the sad songs 800 times, and. And like, and people will say that when they listen to this that kind of music, they're feeling a sense of like um, wonder and awe and connection. It's like the, all the sublime emotions. Um, and I think what's really happening is that those what those musicians are doing and what all creatives are doing, um, in some sense, it's a transformation of pain into beauty. And that's that's why you kind of feel this rush of gratitude almost when you hear music like that. It's like, oh my gosh, the musician's been there. They've experienced something I've experienced too. And not only have they experienced it, but they've transformed it into this miraculous work of gorgeousness. How much of this work, um, obviously with your most recent book, Bittersweet, again, just uh, read the full title here, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. But going back to your early work, Quiet, the power of introverts that uh, in a world that can't stop talking. So how much of that was about you personally being seen? Was it, uh, did you approach this work like in, in the, what was it, the, in the particular lies the universal? Is this like mm-hmm. my story? You, you went deep on your own experience and then lo and behold, you uncovered how an entire culture was feeling, but not saying it, or was there a mission to explore culture and then you found your own place in it? That is such a perceptive question. No one has ever asked that before. I'm a professional. (laughs) You are a professional. That's really good question. I have to say, I I do think it started with a particular, um, and in the case of quiet, like to my surprise, it was the universal. Like when, so with Quiet, when I started working on that book, I thought I was working on this really strange, idiosyncratic, vaguely embarrassing project. Um, and I was just interested in it. And I like I knew I came from a family of introverts. Um, so I knew in a really visceral level how the tendency to be more quiet and prefer solitary activities and all those things, I knew what a power they were, but I didn't. And, and, and like I could look around the world and say, oh, yeah, that person contributed what they did because they were a quiet type. That person did. That person did. I knew all that, but I, I don't think I understood that it was going to touch such a big nerve until I saw it with my own eyes. Um, and with Bittersweet, I think it's a similar thing. I mean, I was just sort of – I just became possessed by by this experience that I kept having when I was listening to this kind of music and feeling like I was on the verge time after time after time on the verge of transcendence and trying to understand how that could possibly be. Um, And at first I didn't even know I was going to write a book about it. It was just like, I wanted to answer that question. Um, And then the more I delved into it, the more I realized that that question sat atop a 2000 year tradition that, our wisdom traditions and artists and writers and psychologists have been talking about, even though our culture never identifies it. Um, you know, like in psychology and mainstream psychology, we don't even make a distinction between melancholy and depression. 
you know, they're like all the same thing. Whereas the bittersweet tradition tells you they're completely different states. You know, depression is an emotional black hole from which no creativity or anything productive really comes. It's just pain. Um, whereas melancholy is more like, it, it's much more of a spiritual state of, of longing for that, that other world, that, that more perfect world. And, and it's creativity and communion that come from that. So yes, it started with this deeply personal question I was trying to figure out. Um, but the interesting thing is that the response that I have gotten to both books is almost identical in the sense that the word that is most, there are two words that are most frequently used, um, permission and validation. You know, like people, so many people will say, oh my gosh, I've been having this feeling all my life. And it was like embarrassing to feel kind of melancholic, but oh, it's validation for what I've always intuited was true, but I've never been able to say it out loud. Um, and that's what I heard with quiet too. Yeah. I, I, it's very hard for me to um, articulate how profound it was. I had always seen, you know, my life partner, my wife, Kate, always seen her genius and, mm -hmm. and I had also watched her. I think she would feel very comfortable with me saying this to a hundred thousand people, by the way, <laughs> that you, you must know, know her really well. Right. I, I do. We're, yeah, we've been, we've been together for a long time. Um, that, you know, I saw her genius and I think she was aware of her genius. Um, and I say genius in sort of the, you know, the, the fuzzy way because we all have genius in so many different capacities. We're all, we all see the world in a special way that, and yet it was very difficult for, you know, her culturally to put a finger on it, to champion it, to, um, and, and I was always a little bit, um, I guess confused by how to embrace that. I didn't have the right words and culturally the, the sort of the lexicon and the framing mm -hmm. wasn't there. And so, you know, when I read quiet, it, it basically put a framework on this thing that I was thinking, but not able to say. And mm -hmm. I would say for her too, you talked about validation. That was one of the first things that, that, that she shared with me when she had, you know, was, she wasn't even done with the book. She was like <laughs> 25 <laughs> pages in, she's like, this, this is, this is what happened. And one of, one of the reasons I want to linger on this for a second, I'm using my wife, Kate is it, like you in the universe or in the particular lies universal, because right yeah. now, you know, of, of everyone who's listening, most people, it turns out are nodding saying, yes, that's me. I hadn't been seen. I didn't fit into the paradigm. I didn't. And first of all, that is, um, that is the work of an artist, right? To, to uncover these things. So you have do, done that beautifully, but more so there's now a framework for understanding and for talking about it. And, um, you know, the relationship between quiet, uh, your first book and bittersweet is not lost on, on anyone. And especially not me having thought a lot about what I want to talk to you about. So let's pull on this thread a little bit. Okay. Does this, um, the idea of being introverted now feel different to you that this is out there in the world, that it, you know, this thing, I don't know, 
it was on the New York Times bestseller list for eight years, if I'm not mistaken. And your TED Talk is one of the top of all time. Bill Gates, if I'm not mistaken, also said it was on his favorite. So is it different now? Do you have a different, do you have, are you, do you feel like you're more bold? And by extension, should those folks listening who aren't aware of your work or who maybe haven't thought about this as hard as you have, Mm -hmm. is there a new, is there a new, is this a new beginning? Is there a a power in leaning into this work, the the work of being an introvert or the, the, uh, sorry, the work that is bolstered by being an introvert or by feeling okay now that these feelings that we have, these bittersweet feelings should we should you know lean into those and double down is the world fundamentally different now yeah um gosh it's such a big question so i'm trying to think um i like to ask small it, questions right? like <laughs> <laughs> what's your birthday I mean, no <laughs> so when it comes to introversion yeah I do believe it's a lot easier to be an introvert now because there's a language for it and because, to come back to that word, there's a validation for it. Um, I'll just give you one example of that. There's so many, but um, a friend of mine taught um, leadership at a at Harvard Business School, and she used to begin her classes by having everybody take one of those personality tests. And she said in the old days, it used to be, and the personality test, among other things, would measure introversion, extroversion. They all do because it's the, what one psychologist calls the north and south of human temperament. So of course they're going to measure that. Um, And she said it used to be that they they would fill out the test and she would be presented by a class of apparently 100% extroverts. And that's because people are basically lying on the test because we all know how to answer the question to make ourselves seem whatever we think is socially appropriate. And she said in the last few years that changed. And now she has a class of half introverts and half extroverts. And that's because the introverts are no longer um, disinclined to claim their true way of being because they know it's not only okay, but it's, it's a, it, it, it's incredibly contributive, you know, yeah. and it, it's got powers of its own. It's just different types of powers from the ones that we had noticed before. Um, and yeah, so my hope is that the same thing is going to happen with bittersweetness. And um, and I believe the very act of naming something and then showing people what the powers are of that thing that you've named, that's really transformative. Um, and I like I know just from the experience doing both with both books I had to struggle so much with what the heck to call this thing I was talking about like I with with quiet I wasn't even sure I was going to use the word introvert because it was such a stigmatized word and I wasn't sure if I should try to reclaim it or invent a whole new word um and with bittersweetness it was like I was trying to identify such an ineffable concept it's like it's almost like the biography of a feeling that we all have, but we don't really know what it is. Um, and I eventually realized that bittersweetness was the best word to describe it. But that took years to figure out. Wow. That the the patience that you've had with both of these works is, is inspirational in and of itself. I want to mention, uh, I, I put a pin in the, in the quiz a few minutes ago, and I want to go back to it 
before we get into the the thing that I mm-hmm. want to you know really lean into, which is this connection between bittersweetness and creativity. You've already yeah. paved the path there, but before I want to I want to. And are you uh, going to tell us how you scored on the quiz? <laughs> <laughs> where, well, where does that come in? Um, yeah, sure. I, I will. I will reveal. Um, okay. But some of the questions is what I will share with the listeners today. Sure, sure. Do you tear up easy at touching TV commercials? Are you moved by old photographs? Do you intensely, sorry, react intensely to music, art, or nature? Have others described you as an old soul? Do you find comfort or inspiration in a rainy day? Do you know what C.S. Lewis meant when he described joy as a sharp, wonderful stab of longing? Are you moved to goosebumps several times a day? Do you seek out beauty in your life? These are just a handful and there are more. So this, I'm wondering if there's a new uh, phrase that my wife and I are talking a lot about in part because of research that was certainly fueled by your work. Uh, This idea that, um, let's see, how would I... How would I couch this? Em- the, the, the phrase is emotionally sensitive people. I think mm-hmm. it's like- Highly sensitive people. Highly, sorry. HSP, yeah. highly sensitive HSPs. people. Mm-hmm. So um, is there a connection there between that work and your work? This idea that we're just generally more movable, you know, the HSPs are, um, I'll, I'll use my wife, Kate, as an example. Um you know, bright lights drive her crazy. Yeah. For example, yeah. loud noises drive her crazy. And there are times for me, I consider myself historically wildly extroverted, but but again, I think I was playing into the cultural norms like many of the Harvard quiz takers. Um, <laughs> and now I think I'm myself as an ambivert because if I'm going to go on stage and do a speaking thing for the 20 minutes before I go on stage, I have to have noise canceling headphones on. Mm-hmm, I can't be backstage mm-hmm. or even in my green room and hear the director saying, okay, Chase, I need you on in three minutes. And, you know, I just, I can't have all that chaos. So. And you is, might be an extroverted HSP. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no. But- see, the, here we go. Well, this, there's a reason I want you in this show. I want you to help me too. This isn't just for everybody else. This is partly selfish. Um, <laughs> but is there a relationship, do you think, between, um, you know, the work of, bittersweetness and just highly sensitive people are, you know, what's the Venn diagram there maybe is a good question. Yeah, there was actually, we found, so we developed the bittersweet quiz for this book. I say we, I did it with uh, Scott Barry Kaufman and David Yaden, who are two amazing psychologists. And, you know, it's just at the very preliminary stages of development, but um, we found that there was a high correlation between bittersweetness and high sensitivity. So you're going like straight to straight to the heart of it. Um, and the interesting thing is there was no correlation between bittersweetness and introversion. And correlation is with high sensitivity. Um, and as I said, you could be highly sensitive and be an introvert or an extrovert. Like about 70% of highly sensitives are introverts, but 30% are extroverts. So um, Now I feel seen. Yeah. Thank you. You're yes. so welcome. Absolutely. So I'm guessing you are a, um, you're an extroverted HSP. I, like, I don't know what to, to what degree. It sounds like you don't share Kate's aversion to bright <laughs> lights and loud noises and stuff, but you I, probably have your own, your other manifestations of it. I'm I guessing. do. I do. Yeah. And it's very, they're very particular the, the noise while I'm trying to relax or prepare or 
like that's definitely one. And, and yet, you know, my idea of, uh, music playing in the background, whether it's our house or our studio or, okay, you know, when we worked together for a long time, used to drive her crazy. My goal with having music was to make it feel more comfortable for more people. And so we ended up, there's all kinds of family discussions and even, you know, all of the um, employees and whatnot at, at, uh, at creative live at, um, at, you know, my, my photo studio before then, like, do we want music playing in the background? And what we found was that we were able to separate the spaces so that those who were, you know, had one in indication could go to one place and another, uh, others could go to another, but the very fact that this was 10 years ago, not a conversation and now is a conversation that I'm having with, you know, within my family that I'm having in all my workplaces is a, a testament to your work, but also B, as you'd say in the research, this has been happening for millennia, right? This is, this is, has a long tradition in our culture. So I would love for you to walk us through some of the findings that you had of how, where this was actually a thing prior to modern times where we thought that only, you know, loud, the word was full of loud extroverts and only happy thoughts were allowed. Take us back. what did you find in the research about how this has actually been happening for forever? Yeah. I mean, literally forever and in every, you know, culture, every society that you look at, but I'll give you um, an ancient one and a well-known one from our culture. Um, and then I'll take you up to the mo modern times, but like, okay, so Homer's Odyssey, which is something we all know, and we think of it as, you know, the grand story of like an epic adventure of a sort of swashbuckling, cunning protagonist, Odysseus. That's how we think of it. Okay, but that story, it begins with Odysseus weeping on a beach with homesickness for his native home, his native island of Ithaca. And in the poem, he is said to be seized by potos, which I may be mispronouncing, but it's the ancient Greek word, P-O-T-H-O-S. It's the ancient Greek word, word to express a longing for the everything good and beautiful that is unattainable. Um, and it was understood in ancient Greece that potos was a catalyzing force. It was not the way we think of it. It was not a passive force that makes you like wallow unhappily and ineffectually. No, it was the opposite. Um, like Alexander the Great was said to be seized by Potos when he looked at the lands he wanted to conquer, which um, not my favorite example, but <laughs> but, that, but that's the idea. Um, and then, okay, look at the at so many of our best loved children's stories, you know, whether it's Harry Potter or Batman or Pippi Longstocking. How many times is the protagonist an orphan before the story even starts? And that is not a coincidence. That is because our artists have understood this for centuries, that there is a fundamental brokenness in all of us. Like we're all sub, we're all vulnerable. We're all subject to plagues and wars and illness and bereavement and all the rest of it. And, and these stories are telling us like that brokenness, it's in us from the start and then it's also the catalyst to the adventures that we take to that which we create in this life. Like that, that's the message of all of these stories. Um, and, and then you can look at this from modern day psychology too. I'll give you one example. Um, 
there was this amazing study that, how did it work? It took, it took a group, it, it took a group of subjects. It divided them into two groups. And one of the groups had to give a speech to an audience where the audience were plants and they like, you know, clapped a lot and were very smiley and approving. And then the other group gave a speech to audience to an audience that appeared to be extremely annoyed and barely clapped at all. And as you would surprise, as you would imagine, afterwards, the people in the first group who gave the well-received speech, they were in a good mood. The people in the second group were feeling pretty crushed and despondent. Okay, but then the researchers also had these people create a collage after giving the speeches, and they had a group of artists rate the collage for creativity. And they found that the people who had given the speech to the disapproving audiences, so they were in a they were feeling sorrowful when they created the collage. Those collages were rated as much more creative than the others. And this was especially true for the people who um, had a biological predisposition to feelings of emotional vulnerability. Like those people had the most creative collages of all. So this is a kind of like validation of an instinct I think we've had for a long time. Um, and I hasten to say that the, the takeaway is not that pain equals creativity. It's that creativity has the power to take that pain and turn it into something else. And when we get into that state of longing, we're more likely to reach for that creative power and turn the pain into something else. Um, and when we're actually clinically depressed, we can't do that. Like we know depressed people are actually less creative. But when, when, when we're in the state of feeling keenly the gap between the world we long for and the one we're in, that's a creative superpower. You also apparently have ESP because that's exactly where my next note was taking us. This like oh my gosh. sorrow does not equal creativity. I think right. that's like that, that is a um, fundamental misreading. It sounds like of your work. And th I think that is on the outset, I'm going to project for a second. If I'm a highly extroverted person and I was listening to the first five minutes and I'm going to say, that's not me. Um, and I didn't know that I needed to be melancholic to be creative. That's not at all what you're saying, but let's, so now let's, now that we've established that, you know, you do part one of the book goes right into the, how we can, how can we transform pain into creativity, transcendence, and love? Mm -hmm. Notice, you know, it's not equal. One, it requires an act of us, the agent, transforming this yeah. material, if you will, into yeah. these, you know, these, the, the, you know, something so vital for us. So let's walk down that path together now, if we can, this, it, it's sort of, is it access? Is it, you know, give us some more words to, to understand this concept of how we transform pain into creativity. A, we all have pain, you know, B, everyone's creative. So is this, again, is the, what's the work that we ought to do to be transforming some of this pain into creativity. Yeah. And, and it's not only creativity, I should say, that we can transform pain into. It's I, I, I would 
look at it more as um, transforming pain into something beautiful. Um, so it could be like a stereotypically creative act, but it could also be an act of healing um, of ourselves or of other people. It could be many different things, but I, it's it's really the question of like, okay, we all face pain at some point, and now you're at a crossroads. Are you going to uh, repress the it? pain and yeah. not acknowledge it, and then end up taking it out on yourself or somebody else, or are you going to go through this kind of alchemical act of turning it into something else? Um, and how do you do that? I mean, one one of the best ways I know to do that is to affirmatively seek beauty everywhere you can and to understand beauty as not just being like, oh, well, you know, that's like, makes me happy to look at something beautiful. It's not only that, it's like beauty is a representation of that other state. Um, so, so, so the act of seeking it out, um, is in and of itself transformative. Like I, and I actually ended up doing this almost instinctively during the pandemic when I was also like deep at work in this book. I found myself at first um, doom scrolling Twitter every morning and I would like wake up in this state of anxiety. And I ended up asking people to share with me their favorite art accounts on Twitter. And I started following them. And pretty soon my whole feed was full of art. And then I started as a daily practice. And this wasn't a conscious thing. It just happened. I started as a daily practice almost every day sharing on my socials a favorite work of art, like usually a painting because that works well on social. Um, so a favorite painting along with a quote or a poem or an idea that I was having. And and I, it would take me like an hour every morning to do it, you know, like pairing the right painting with the right idea. Um and I loved it, though. It was like a daily meditative practice, and it set the stage for my writing for the rest of that day. And it didn't really serve any purpose other than other than what? I don't know. Other than getting into the right state of mind. It's like, a, you know, and an act of sharing beauty with other people is transformative in and of itself. So I, I believe we should be taking daily acts of beauty into our workplaces, you know, and starting the workday with them. That's, that's one way to do this. The search for beauty, um, to me, but was part of, uh, a big transformation for me personally. And mm. I'm wondering if you can articulate the ways that you have through interviews, through research, through historical examples, your own, you know, your, your own experiences, which is largely what the book is, right? It's, you've done such a nice job of weaving the stories of it's almost, it's part memoir, part research, part his, history, yeah. but this, um, seeking beauty, mm -hmm. the, the, when I first understood that I went to, to college, to be a doctor ostensibly actually oh, it was wow. mostly a vehicle it was mostly a vehicle to play division one soccer and then when i was there i was like okay i better have a backup plan according to mom and dad and then halfway <laughs> through i'm like i am so doomed because i'm not all that psyched about continuing my soccer career this whole idea of becoming a doctor is for sure a charade and so <laughs> i pursued philosophy as a as a vector for oh my god i can 
I can get a degree for reading the books that I want to read. This is incredible. I want to go do this. And the, the area that captured my heart the most was, uh, was aesthetics and trying to understand beauty and the seeking of the beautiful. So, you know, this year I'm sharing a little bit about my personal journey, but yeah, no, I love it. why, you know, why does the, what I would call the intention of seeking beauty, why is that different than stumbling on beauty or is it? It's because, because the beautiful is just one manifestation of this ultimate state that we are all seeking. And whether you call that state divinity, I mean, for some people, they'd be like, okay, you guys are you know, dancing all around this. What you're really talking about is God and divinity. And that's, and that's what really the religious impulse is. Um, and for some, for somebody else, you know, you might be a total atheist and that doesn't speak to you at all, but it doesn't matter because either way, whether we're talking about truth or beauty um, or love, these are all different ma- manifest in my mind. These are all different manifestations of the same state of the place we long to be, you know, that more perfect, more beautiful world. And so the very act of searching for it puts us in the mind of, um, it puts us in the state of mind where we're more aligned with the better world. We're never going to approach it. It's kind of like an asymptote, but, but we're headed more in that direction. And I can tell you, like, you know, during COVID, I, I lost my father and my brother to COVID. Um, and it was obviously a really difficult time. Um, and, and my father had been a big music lover too. He was the one who first introduced me to music and the love of it. Um, and he had loved, well, he loved a lot of music, but he loved Jacques Brel. And um, and so during the weeks when he was in the hospital and I was like waiting to hear news of him, I found myself listening to Jacques Brel for the first time. It may have been decades. I hadn't heard it in a long time. Um, and And the night that he died, I was listening all the time to that music. And it was like, I was partly trying to find him in the music. Um, and I didn't find him in the music, but, but I found something else. Like it was like the music, the music is just a manifestation of the same thing that makes us love a parent so much or makes us love anyone so much. They're all manifestations of the same thing. And that's why it's so crucial to try to to live in that place as much as possible um, because of what it helps us create and also because of what it helps us withstand, you know, the, the, the griefs. um, There's, there is a way in which you lose a particular love, but you can realize that love itself exists beyond the particularity of the person who you're grieving. And I know that sounds like really, abstract um at the time that you're in the full full throatedness of grief yeah. but it still helps it still buoys you up what what's the so i mentioned brene earlier dear friend and yeah. has done similar work in our culture as you have with mm-hmm. um if you know the idea of 
being quiet and being, um, you know, this idea of bittersweet, both historically, like, mm, I'm not so sure I want to talk about that, those feelings <laughs> and what yeah. Brene has done with vulnerability, right? Vulnerability, like, mm, who wants to sign up for that? You know, she, she always, she tells a funny story about, uh, she doesn't want to talk on a plane when someone says, what do you do? She said, I'm a shame and vulnerability researcher. And that just <laughs> usually stops the conversation right there. But I'm wondering because, uh, you know, in part, she's done a great job of bringing this idea into our culture. And I know, you know, she, she's blurbed your book for you and, and there's a deep connection there between the work. Yeah. But what would your thoughts, you know, on, I'm curious your thoughts on vulnerability and the vulnerability that the role that vulnerability plays in this journey to something more perfect, because I do believe that that work has now penetrated our culture similar to yours and people are like, okay, cool. You know, and even Adam Grant talks about this in, in, in leadership, right? Being vulnerable as a leader is now we have the capacity to see that as a strength and a connection and it builds bridges rather than walls and all kinds of metaphors there. I'm wondering if I'm just dying to hear your, you know, what role does vulnerability play for, I'll just use the framework for, for, you know, we who identify as creators or creatives, mm -hmm. what role does that play in, in your world, in our journey toward this more perfect, this more perfect state of being, for example? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that you could be truly creative without being willing to be vulnerable. Um, maybe you can, because I, I do tend to think there's like different ways of doing a million different things. Right. So yeah, of course there's but, no one path, right? Yeah. There's no one path. And, and, and I think like the kind of stuff that I talk about is basically what one, one path, like a big path that's been overlooked, but it's not the only one, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, but, but usually if like, if you look at the, artists the creative work that most moves you usually what it's doing is it's usually expressing a truth that is in some way difficult or embarrassing to express and and then not only is it expressing it but it's expressing it beautifully or impressively or whatever um like I was, my, my kids are going through an Eminem phase. Um, and I really love Eminem too. And we were like driving around and listening to his songs. And I, I was pointing it out to him, like all, to them, all his best songs. He's, he's basically talking about stuff that most people don't really want to say out loud. And then he does it in this incredibly dazzling way. And that's what creativity is in some large part. It's like telling the truth of what it's like to be alive and if if it were easy to tell that truth then we wouldn't prize it the way we do mm. but it's not that easy and if it were easy to tell it not only to tell it but to tell it in some way that's compelling or beautiful or you know rhythmical or whatever um if it were so easy we would all just do it like that but it's not like that's why it's the holy grail that we're all looking to do it's so true it's, and it's, you know, it's obvious when you say it out loud, but why has it taken us so long to figure this out? This is a, this is a serious question. Why was your work groundbreaking? It, it shouldn't have been, this should be like, we experience this all the time and we're feeling it, not saying it. What's, you know, what, 
who's I'm, this is a little bit who's to to blame in air quotes for this you know this given this has been happening for millennia you talked about the ancient greeks had, greeks had no problem with it why did it become hard in our world well that was one of the questions i wanted to answer um so i actually talk about this in the bittersweet book um that to try to yeah to answer exactly that question and if you if you trace our cultural history especially in the 19th century you know we became increasingly um this country of of business right and during the 19th century we went through all a series of booms and busts. So you had all these people who are making fabulous sums of money and then losing them and then making them and then losing them. Um, and you had other people who were trying desperately to become successful businessmen and, and they couldn't. And, and then some could, and there became this question of like, well, what is it that makes some people succeed and some people not? That became a huge question. And people started asking the corollary question when someone succeeds or fails is it because of something inside that person? They called it in the man. Is it because of some characteristic inside them? Or is it because of just outer fortunes that do or don't smile upon them? And the answer increasingly became that it had something to do with who you were inside. Um, to the point that the word loser became... Um, a more and more widely used word. Like loser used to mean just literally someone who has lost something, you know, like I, I lost my phone. I'm a loser. Like that's all it meant. <laughs> um, but, but then it became like, this terrible, distasteful thing, like the last thing you'd want to be. But to the point where even in the great depression, when there were all these economic forces that were making people lose their shirts, there would be headlines run that would say things like loser commits suicide in streets. Um, so it was this idea of like the last thing you wanted to be. And we still, we're still living with this framework of winners and losers. And what ended up happening is if you wanted to show that you were a winner at all costs, you had to act like a winner. If you, if you wanted to show you were inside a winner, you had to be smiling, you had to be confident, you had to be like striding happily through the world. Melancholy? Are you kidding me? Like, why would I ever want to show that? That's putting me closer to the domain of being a loser, of being someone who's apt to lose their shirt when the next economic panic comes. Um, and, and so you still see this today, even though, you know, with Brene's amazing work on, on vulnerability, as you're talking about, and we've all started to accept that. At the same time, like I went back to my college campus 30 years later, I started interviewing the students about what they were really feeling. Um, and the first thing they start telling me about is this phenomenon that they call effortless perfection, which basically means um, the pressure that they all feel to be thin and attractive and socially adept and get amazing grades and to do all of this without any apparent effort. Um, so we're not so comfortable yet with our vulnerability. We, we've gotten kind of half of the way there and we still have a lot farther to go. Um, but uh, but I think we, we really have to uproot this idea of dividing humanity into winners and losers as opposed to a more bittersweet view, which is in a course of a given life, you will win, you will lose for sure. Both those things will happen. I, I love it. And 
uh, when I was reading that part of the book, obviously you just immediately go to social media, right? What you're projecting yeah. out into the world versus your own experience versus this is you're comparing your own real life experiences to somebody else's highlight reel, which causes this increasing separation and distance from our true selves, from, you know, isolation, from the rest of the community, because we're social animals, which has all sorts of, you know, toxic, we are now learning that, that you know, that is a very toxic cycle. Um, what would you, you know, comment on social media for a moment? Yeah. I, so what you just said is a huge problem. And then of course there's the, um, you know, the whole problem of our algorithms, which drive us towards increasing outrage at each other and um, disapproval of each other. I don't, I don't know the answer. I'm not a computer engineer in any way, but I am guessing there would be a way of designing our algorithms so that people would be rewarded for telling the truth of their experiences and not considering like what the policy outcome should be of those experiences or anything like that, but just telling the truth for a while. There must be some way of redesigning the algorithms to do that. I don't know. That's probably a hopelessly naive thing to say, but I, but there's no real reason that outrage should be more rewarded than anything else. Um, so, yeah. I love it. And right now I'm, someone's listening and they're like, all right, that is a worthy that is a worthy goal for my life. So if you're a computer engineer, please let's get on this. We need, we need your help. Uh, obviously that would be a huge, um, change. And you know, that the, you know, you mentioned is a, is that a naive thing? Like what's the, you know, the Schopenhauer's states of truth, right? Something is like, you know, not never going to happen, um, could happen. And now is self-evident. So I hope you've, you're, you're prescient <laughs> in saying that this is this is it's on its way. Someone is uh, coming to the rescue. I love that your your philosophy degree is there. You go. Off for in, us. I, I can. <laughs> my, um, one of my graduate professors, this is truth, called me an armchair philosopher. And I was in a PhD program in philosophy. He's like, <laughs> you're just really an armchair philosopher, and because I didn't want to write about. Uh, logic-based philosophy, and um, I was more continental in a department that was very, um, you know, logic-based. logic, logic based. Not to say that my arguments weren't logical, but I've been called, I've been called a lot of bad things for bringing my philosophy into, into conversations. Oh, well, I obviously love it. Have you ever gone back to that philosophy professor to... Um show him the way you're using. I haven't, I haven't nowadays. given, I have not given him the time of day, Yeah, okay. <laughs> but I do walk around campus occasionally, um, uh, to take in beauty as an example. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a one section of the university of Washington where I went to graduate school. I haven't really gone back to San Diego state where I did my undergraduate. Uh, that was mostly focused on, uh, soccer and partying. But I do go. Both of my sons are soccer players too. By the oh, way. Well, we could talk a lot. I'm. Uh, I've, it's a big part of my early um, identity. I, I would call it. I think it's reasonable, for better or worse, to say that. But rolling, walking around a con uh, a uh, college campus to take in the beauty. University of Washington is incredibly beautiful. Actually, was just there last week. There's a the cherry blossoms are in right now because it's March in Seattle. 
And uh, it was truly stunning beauty. And I felt all of the feeling. It was, you know, in preparation for our conversation today, I was reading the book. And I was just like, overwhelmingly, you just see an entire, you know, football field full of cherry blossoms all. And there was just, wow. it was like a fairy tale. The wind was blowing and they were floating. And you know, the ones were coming off the floating in the air. It was like it was snowing. And I was, it was a one-to-one connection with, with, your work with with picturing this you know this idea of experiencing beauty and it was such an emotional uh, experience for me so um, and you know that um cherry blossoms are the ultimate bittersweet flower like the reason the japanese love them and honor them the way they do is because they are so fleeting they like they they die so quickly um so for the Japanese, that there's a word which I may be mis- mispronouncing, but it's something like mano no aware, and it means the gentle sadness um, at the passing of beautiful things. Um, so it, it's a it's kind of way of honoring impermanence and beauty simultaneously. So uh, I could talk to you for the the next five hours because I'm fascinated by doing work that is new and groundbreaking as an artist. Um, but I've only, I've promised to keep our conversation to an hour and, you know, I got a long history of the podcast being about this, but I'm hoping that this next sort of question can be big enough that it, you know, allows you to, to, um, moonwalk out of our conversation with a bunch of, you know, inspiration for those and a a desire. Again, I I have to take one moment before I ask this question about just to give an overt recommendation. You have to read bittersweet, how sorrow and longing make us whole. We are very good. This community is very good at buying books. If this, uh, I believe that this episode will go down as a great one because you've captured the human spirit in a, in a very special way. But leave us with an idea of a recommendation for how to be in the world such that if, if we took your recommendation that we would be more in line with the work and be, as you know, you've talked about this pattern, being closer to, um, to that optim- that more perfect experience this is your work is about the human condition i think that's what's so you know powerful about it is we're all like a hundred times reading the book you're like yes that that and that's why my wife said 20 pages into quiet you have to read this this is me (laughs) so you know give us some lightweight instructions if you will and of course people know where they can get more just go buy the book but give us some light, you know, this is a wrap us up here. Give us some lightweight instructions on how to do this. Yeah. Okay. I will. And do you have time for like a story with one of those I, instructions? Please, yeah, I, no, I'm just, I'm just trying to be respectful of the time that we've carved out for our show today. And I will stay here way longer than you will want to. So please <laughs> okay. give us the story. This is not TV. We do not need sound bites. We need the full uninterrupted you. Okay. So I'm going to give you like two, I don't know what the word was, what you asked for, but you know, two things you can, three things you can follow. And then I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. So one of them is what we've been talking about the whole time in a way, but to sum it up, it's whatever pain you can't get rid of, make it your creative offering. Um, So that's one. 
second thing of just something really helpful you can do is what's called expressive writing. And this comes from the work of James Pennebaker, who did these crazy, crazy in their astonishing results studies. He's a psychologist at UT, um, where he found that the simple act of writing down your troubles and your difficult experiences, um, it, it improves your blood pressure, it improves your work performance, it's, it lightens your load. Um, he did this one study of 50-year-old uh, engineers who had been laid off and were quite depressed about it. And he had half of them just write down what they were wearing every morning, and the other half quickly wrote down their troubles. And the ones who wrote down their troubles were much more likely to have found a job a few months later. Um, and also their, their spirits were lifted too. So that's one thing, just like daily expressive writing. You can throw it away when you're done. It doesn't have to be perfect um, or even good. And then the third thing, and this is this, and I'm gonna, then I'll, I guess I'll end with this story. But the third thing is to follow your longing where it's telling you to go. And I will tell you my story of having done this, which is, um, so unlike you, you were saying that you very wisely figured out that you didn't want to be a doctor like five minutes after you got to college. And that was really smart. Um, but I ended up going to law school um, in my bid to be practical and be able to support myself. And I became a Wall Street lawyer for seven years. And um and I just got really into it and I wanted to make partner, except one day this senior partner knocked on my door and, and said that I wasn't making partner after all. And I had this sense of the world coming crashing down around me when this happened. Um, but, but I left the law firm that afternoon. <laughs> I wasted no time. I got out and, um, and a few weeks after that, I ended a seven-year relationship that had always felt wrong. And so now I was in the state, I was in my early 30s, and I had no career and no love and no place to live because I moved out of the apartment. Um, so I was just like floating around. Um, and I fell into a relationship with a guy who was a lyricist and a musician and had a kind of lit up way about him. Um and it quickly turned into an obsession, an obsessional relationship that I've never experienced before or since. Um, this was, I guess, the early 90s. So we didn't have phone, smartphones at the time. So I would spend my days like dodging into internet cafes in New York City, looking to see had there been an email from him. Um, and I had a friend whom I surely bored ad nauseum with stories of this guy who I was obsessed with until one day she said to me, if you are this obsessed, it's because he represents something you're longing for. So what are you longing for? And, and the answer came to me right away. It really was one of those epiphany type moments. It was like, I had wanted to be a writer since I was four. I was longing for that world. And he represented to me this world of art and creativity and writing that I had been divorced from all those years that I was a lawyer. Um, and all of a sudden, when she said that, the obsession fell away. It was like it was gone. I still loved him as a person, but the obsession was gone. And I started writing for real. 
And it was by the simple act of like thinking, okay, this thing that's driving me crazy, what does it represent? What's the real underlying longing uh, beneath it? And that's the question to ask ourselves because there's almost always something that we're longing for. And even if it feels unhealthy on the surface, it can be taking us in the right direction if we follow its true meaning. Mm. And our ability to be honest with ourselves that is the maybe the the genesis of your next work. <laughs> how can we how to be, how to be honest with ourselves? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely heartwarming, insightful connecting. Thank you so much for not just that last pearl of wisdom there, but for your work, for both works. Again, I'm, I, I'm a huge advocate, quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking and your newest work, bittersweet, how sorrow and longing make us whole. Susan, thank you so much for being on the show. How many, however many years in the making we decided it was at the beginning, (laughs) infinity. Now we're at an infinity years. Um, but is there anything else anywhere you'd want to point our, our watchers and listeners um, out there in the internet to support you, to um, just to, to learn more, you know, anywhere you direct us? I guess to follow me on my socials, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, um, sharing my art and so on. Uh, my favorite art, not my art. Um, and Oh, and there's also a new TED Talk on bittersweetness that you can find it's called the hidden power of sad songs and rainy days that I did. And most of all, I just want to thank you so much for having me. And I love the fact that you have been following your longing and your path. It seems quite effortlessly. I'm sure there's more to the story (laughs) than we got in, in this hour. Um, And also a big hug to Kate. Thank you. She is a, uh, going to be so happy because I'm going to immediately get off the phone and, give her a call and let her know how our conversation went. And again, so grateful for you, for your work. We're, we're fans. We are, we'll have you back on the show anytime. Hopefully it's not such a big gap um, between when we started our, our endeavor and the next one. But if so, I will respect it because I will know that you are <laughs> protecting your time and yourself in a healthy way and continue to put out awesome work. Thank you so much, Susan, for being on the show. Uh, from myself and our listeners and watchers out there, uh, we bid everybody out there uh, adieu. You too. Thank you so much, Chase, and everyone listening. Until next time, signing off, everybody. Thanks for paying attention. All right, that's all for today's show. But hey, before you go, I want to say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform. Wherever you consume a show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, thank you so much. Reviews help a ton if you're willing to. And I want to let you know in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show, or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also... I will see your message quicker if you shoot me a text. That's right, I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of texts, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment, but trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I wanna say thanks so much, and I look forward to engaging with you soon.